Welcome back to the Chris Rawl Show. Thank you for joining me. I am Chris Rawl. I write a newsletter in addition to recording two of these shows per week. You, the listener, I presume, are already listening to the show. If you have not signed up for my newsletter, you need to go and do that. It'd be a nice gesture for me. I'd consider an early Christmas gift. All you need to do is go to chrisrawl.com, click on the subscribe button, put your email address. Every Wednesday morning, you'll be getting some sort of 500 or 700 word soliloquy from me about the world of sports. In addition to that, I will be starting to incorporate guests onto this show. I've been reaching out to some people that I think would be interesting to talk to about sports in various capacities. If you have anybody that you think would be a good fit for that, email me, chris at ceo.com. Nobody is too small, nobody is too big. Uh, if you think that somebody would make a good match there, now I sound like a matchmaker, but we'll continue. Uh, again, email me at chris at ceo.com. Okay, enough of the business. We are here to talk sports on this beautiful Tuesday. Today, the episode is all about being good enough for the breaks to matter. In my youth, I always celebrated the very best teams because I was young and my brain was small and that's all I understood. So I watched the Cowboys and I thought the Cowboys are the best team because the Cowboys win all the time. That makes sense. The teams that did not win, I never would acknowledge them as being good. I just go, well, you're obviously not good enough to win. I'd watch the Chicago Bulls win a lot and I would go, the Chicago Bulls, that's the very best team. That makes a lot of sense. Jordan and Pippen and Rodman and Phil Jackson makes a lot of sense. That's how I became a Nebraska fan. Nebraska was on TV every Saturday. I only had two channels and a lot of times it was Nebraska because they were the dynasty in the mid nineties. And they're running that triple option and they're winning and it made sense that they were good and I enjoyed it and I was eight years old and I thought, this is my team and this is sweet. Hockey, same kind of deal as I started getting the sport. And if you weren't the Wings or the Avalanche or the Devils or the Stars, the teams that kind of controlled that 10-year window, I didn't really have time for you. You know, all these other squads, it was easy to understand their greatness because they were favorites and because they won. That's how a youthful brain works, you know. Uh, and many times that's how a lot of adults brains work too when it comes to sports. It needs to be there right in front of your face to understand, okay, this is the very best team because they are hoisting the trophy. Now, back in the day, again, I was much, much more dismissive of the teams that didn't seem as good on paper entering into the playoffs, but hung around long enough to be considered title contenders, even if ultimately they ended up falling short. I was very dismissive of that particular section of squads because, again, I needed to see it in front of my face. Now, time goes on, I grow older, and I start to think about a lot of things much more differently than I did when I was 8 or 12 or 16. And this is one of the areas that I've really seen my mind expand. And indeed, as it pertains to talking about sports, a thing that I really truly love, not just on this show, but with anybody in life that I see and, and just come across, this is one of the areas that I love to talk about. These teams that you look at on paper and you go, maybe they don't stack up against those cowboys or bulls or cornhusker teams. But, you know, with the right breaks and the right light, I start to see glimmers of things that make sense. Now, one of the things that has really ushered me down this path that has caused me to think differently about the uh, pseudo contenders that are hanging there, not having won, that should not be considered favorites, that need breaks to go their way, 
The thing that has caused me more than anything to think differently is the world of amateur golf. Because now, having gone through a lot of years of this particular struggle, I have infinite respect for professional teams and athletes that are good enough for the breaks to matter because I've seen that happen within my own life. Uh, There's certain ways that you can make me bristle when you're talking about my own amateur golf ability and career. And one of the things that I bristle about is when people come to me and, you know, we'll have mutual friends or they'll know skill level of people that I play with and they go, yeah, I hear you've been, you've made a lot of improvements and you're playing great. And, you know, can you beat so-and-so? And I go, yeah, you know, on the right day, I can beat that person. They go, well, yeah, but, you know, how often, how often do you beat them? I go, well, okay, let's, who are we talking about? Okay, one of the best golfers that I play with. Okay, you know, I'm good enough to beat them straight up, you know, 15% of the time, let's say, 20% of the time. One out of every five rounds that we go head to head, you know, I've gotten good enough to where I can beat this particular golfer on this particular day. And a lot of people who are not tuned into the game will always go, that's it. You can only, one out of every five, 20% probability. And I always take great umbrage at this particular conversation. I go, no, 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 no. I want to be very clear. I don't think you understand how incredibly hard it is to get into a position where I can beat somebody who is very good at golf 20% of the time. I don't think you understand how hard that is. And they'll go, well, explain, you know, what do you, I don't, yeah, what do you mean? Oh, well. I am still, in present day, having golf for eight plus years, I'm still at at a great deficit when it comes to experience and physical tools. However, despite that, I put in a lot of work and just uh, thought, practice, you name it, literally everything that I could possibly sink into getting better, I've tried to do. And through that process, you know, I've gotten over the course of nearly a decade to where Okay, I can go toe-to-toe on the right day with really good people who have been in the game all their life and who still do things physically at a much higher level than I do. Now, once I start to explain that and I'll go, look, I, I mean, I don't say this as hyperbole. One of the things that I am proudest about literally in my entire life is getting good enough at golf for the breaks to matter, okay? It's a very important distinction not gotten good enough at golf that where now I'm one of the best amateur golfers in the state of Utah. No, quite far from that. But it takes an incredible amount of effort and talent and honing your physical skills and your mental skills and all the stuff that goes into the game to get to the point where you can step onto a course with a lot of people who are good and go, some days I'm going to get my ass kicked right out to sea. Some days I'll be floating in the middle of a 60 person field because, you know, that's, pretty much where my skill is relative to a lot of these people. But on the right day, I can piece things together. I can weather actual storms. I can weather the the physical and emotional storms that come with the game in ways that other people don't that day. And it's one of those 15% days. It's one of those 20% days where I go, hmm, I played against a lot of good golfers today and I was the 10th best. And that's really something special for me where I can have that deficit that I spoke to. But on the right day against really good competition, one-on-one, I can hang around and win. That's something that has really opened my mind to this particular facet of sports. 
and being less dismissive because now I am one of the t- one of the people that hangs around on the fringes and says, mm, I am good enough for the breaks to matter. No one would ever pick me to be a favorite in any capacity if you lined up five really good golfers. That's just not, I'm just not that good. But being good enough for the breaks to matter is something that is A, worthy of celebration, and B, merits a further discussion. Because in professional sports, this can encompass a reasonable amount of teams. Uh, The talent is shrunk more to the middle than you'll get in a Utah amateur golf tournament or just me playing with my random friends, right? Professional sports teams, they have a lot of really talented people. Now, where this separation starts to occur, where you get the people that on paper, you go, this is the very best team. I feel comfortable saying that does not mean they will win because we know sports can be a little bit strange and chaotic. But on paper, here's the small, maybe it's one, maybe it's three in any given season going in. We go, this should definitely be the favorite or the favorites. Then you have that list of teams afterwards where you go, "Ah, in the right light, I get them as a title contender. I would never favor them. I don't like this particular matchup. I don't like this particular thing about them. But they were good enough to get to the playoffs. Now, can they be good enough to win as underdogs for this series or for this game? And then do it again and then do it again. That's where the breaks start to factor in. Because if you're just lining everybody up and you say, everybody's healthy, there's not going to be any wonky ref calls. There's not going to be any fruitcake bounces that kick off a field goal post or bounce off a goal post in hockey. It's just going to be the best team here is going to win. Okay, well, that would be boring. Instead, we can get stories like last year's Cincinnati Bengals, which is a team that as I watched them throughout the course, actually even starting from their first playoff game against the Raiders, but as they moved throughout the playoffs on their way to the Super Bowl, I gained a lot of respect for this team because A, they were good enough for the breaks to matter and B, watching that team, and this spans out to a lot of this particular subject, it's synonymous to me with resiliency. It's a team that understands, all right, who gives a shit that we are not as good on paper as these other teams? We are still damn good and we have things that we trust in. And so if we do the things we're good at and the breaks fall our way, hell yeah, we're going to be rocking and rolling. And that's the vibe that I got from the Cincinnati Bengals. A lot of people pointed to Burrow because he just emanates that. Burrow just goes, I'm the swaggiest dude in the room. All right, sweet. You don't think I have an offensive line? I don't care. You don't think our defense is good enough? I don't care. You, you think Zach Taylor's a bad coach? I don't care. I'm going to go and make a bunch of throws to Jamar Chase and just we're going to be in position to win at the end of these games. So the start of the playoffs going in, you look at the AFC and I go, well, the Chiefs are definitely better. The Bills are definitely better. The Titans are definitely better. They're the first seed. I mean, I look down further down the list. I'm like, all right, the Bengals. Yeah, they're they're kind of on the same plane as the Patriots team that was just bamboozled by Buffalo in their first game. On the same plane as the Raiders, the team that they ended up playing in round one. I would even point to a team like the Colts who did not make the playoffs, completely blew it last week of the regular season against the Jaguars. And I think a lot of people were high on the Colts. I was where I'm just like, oh, this is an intriguing wildcard team, a team that maybe in the right light, if they got the breaks, I could see them doing things. I like how opportunistic their defense is. I like Jonathan Taylor running the ball. I could see things. I like Frank Reich as a coach. Okay. Instead, they're not even in the playoffs. And I'm comparing the Bengals who are to them goes to show you this is where the Bengals are at at this time in my mind. Now, good enough for the breaks to matter. You have to have talent and skill in a lot of areas to get to that point. Think back to my amateur golf stuff. That's why I bristle at it. I go, no, 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 no. 
yes, there is a component of luck that is involved with this. And for me to be my best, I have to have luck on my side because I'm not as talented as these other people. However, that is not to say that I do not have a lot of talent in areas X, Y, and Z. Bengals were the same thing because I look at Burrow and Chase and I go, that's about as good of a quarterback wide receiver combination as you're getting. Yeah, they're young. And it seemed like they just exploded on the scene and my brain couldn't process that. But now I'm watching them and I'm going, I don't know. There's not a lot of wide receiver quarterback combinations I would take over that. And that defense that people have questions about, well, they were opportunistic throughout the season. They had a lot of shrewd free agent signings to build up that defensive line and that back end. Now they're getting there and going, they were a lot better defensively than I thought. Evan McPherson, their rookie kicker from Florida, he's out of his mind all season. I'm like, well, let's see him in the playoffs. But yeah, he played great. And then we're watching this in the playoffs and all those units and players are doing things. Burrow and Chase, we know. The defense, we know. Evan McPherson, just ice in his veins, drilling kicks every game. They're doing things that you have to do at a high level in order to be in position for the breaks to come through. Okay, that's in the Raiders game. It's a referee blowing a play dead on third down in the first half then somehow allowing it to continue even though most people had stopped and Burrow throws it into the end zone for a Bengals, what ends up being counted as a touchdown, even though the Raiders kind of stopped on the play because they thought the referee, well, they didn't think. The referee had blown the whistle because it looked like Burrow might have stepped out as he was running out, which he had not. Instead, a play that either should have been fourth down kicking a field goal or at worst, hey, that was an inadvertent whistle, my bad, we need to replay that down, ends up being a Bengals touchdown. That's a huge break going their way. Next game, you have a lot of stuff going well. Chase makes a huge play. Evan McPherson is probably the star of the game. Burrow's making good throws. But the breaks in that game is, you know, we couldn't really plan for, but we got in this game, Ryan Tannehill meltdown. He's just throwing it to the other team again and again and again, including on their final possession of the game that sets up the game-winning field goal for McPherson. Chiefs game, the Bengals are doing a lot of good things in that game. Again, Burrow, Chase, McPherson, opportunistic defense. But the break in that game is the Chiefs who are rampaging them in the first half they kind of take their foot off the gas and then the next thing you know the second half is occurring and it's the worst second half of Patrick Mahomes entire career I don't know what happened seemed like he had some sort of injury but they were saying he didn't have an injury so we just watched him play like he was Jake Heaps (laughs) and the next thing you know the game's in overtime the next thing you know the Bengals are winning even in the Rams game a game that the Bengals ultimately end up losing they made a lot of plays in that game And they got a huge injury their way. OBJ tears his ACL, who had become a really key piece of the Rams offense, take a lot of pressure off of Cooper Cup. Just these two wideouts that were really, really hard to cover when combined in unison. And instead he was gone. And they're just going, okay, all we have to worry about is Cup. And it made it really hard for the Rams to move the ball in that game. The Bengals were this close, this close, I mean this close, to winning the Super Bowl. Despite the fact that nobody, including myself, Thought they were anywhere near that at the start of the playoffs. Those are the types of teams that I go, hmm, I have a newfound respect for you because A, you embody resiliency. B, you have trust that, okay, we are not the best team on paper, but sometimes that's not as important as just putting yourself in position again and again and again. A thing that I continually harp on. You know, five years of being this version of the Bengals and just saying, all right, you're okay, but you're in the playoffs. That's worth more weight statistically speaking in my mind, than the one year that you're just the biggest favorite on paper, but you got to go through the gauntlet of the NFL or NBA or NHL playoffs, and the other four years you're just cast out to see. I have a lot of respect for that particular facet of sports. Now, along with golf in my own life, the other thing that really helped sink this home for me and kind of make me look at teams in the past I would notice their failings and so nope, out, nope, out, nope, out. And I would whittle a list down to three teams that I felt comfortable at the end of the year. 
what helped open my mind in that capacity and make me look maybe through a little more rose-colored glasses at a larger amount of teams entering every playoffs was the 2010 Packers, a team that kind of similar to what the Bengals pulled off, except they ended up winning the Super Bowl. And I think by the end of that, I felt better about them as a team than the Bengals, but it was a similar concept. The team that was beset by injuries a lot, Aaron Rodgers was still young. We didn't fully know what we had. We knew he was really good because he'd balled out in the playoffs a year prior against Arizona, even though they lost. But even with all this stuff, the Packers needed to win their last two regular season games just to get into the playoffs as a wild card. They host the Giants in week 16, the Bears in week 17. The Giants game, Rodgers goes nuclear. He's just throwing it all over the yard. I'm giddy. James Jones is dropping passes. It doesn't even matter because I'm just like, oh, man. Then the next game, they can't move the ball. They're playing the Bears, who had one of the best defenses in football that year, right in the middle of the Erlacher era. And Packers can't move the ball, can't move the ball, but the Packers defense rises up. They hold the Bears to three points. They win 10-3. So I'm celebrating. Okay, sweet. We're into the playoffs. However, going into those playoffs, I'm excited that they're there, but I'm just like, eh, I have a whole boatload of reasons why this team is not going to win this year. A, injuries have been against us, but there's just... It's hard to find consistency on either side of the ball right now. Part of that might be injury related, but it's just, I don't know. doesn't make a lot of sense in my mind going to the playoffs. And this is a person who'd watched this team all year long. Now they play Philly in the wild card round on the road. And I honestly did not expect Green Bay to win that game. Philly was great that year. Mike Vick resurgence. Just, he was out of his mind, but Green Bay goes in. They slog it around. Rodgers makes some plays. Defense picks off Vick in the end zone to seal the game. And as the playoffs start moving along, I go, okay, I'm starting to realize that, yes, there's a lot of warts this team had and still has. Some of them are now getting minimized because players who are injured are returning. But now I'm starting to comprehend what I did with the Bengals. Reasons to believe that this team is good enough for the breaks to matter, which, again, is a very, very incredible spot to get to. So they beat Atlanta, and now I'm really thinking, okay, Okay, I'm starting to understand this team that just smoked the number one seed in the NFC. They have things that really make sense in the confines of this playoffs this year. Rodgers, first and foremost, that was my favorite game of his career. But what really started to spring up, especially in that game, was this Green Bay defense makes a lot of sense. A defense that ends up being, in my opinion, the best of the last 20 plus years. A defense that got healthy at the right time, had a lot of playmakers that once they gelled together, I was going, ah, sweet. Charles Woodson, holy Matt, girl, this guy's incredible. Clay Matthews, right at the peak of his powers. BJ, Raji, holy cow. Nick Collins, who had his career ended short by a neck injury, just flourishes as this incredible free safety. Sam Shields, his, he gets swapped over from wide receiver to quarterback, and he's making incredible picks. They're, just go down the list of all these players that suddenly I'm watching, and I'm going, so we have a good defense and a good quarterback. And you know what that is? A formula for winning a Super Bowl. So in the span of two games, Philly and Atlanta, now they're going on the road to Chicago for the NFC title game. I'm sitting there thinking, well, this team is, I think this team's the favorite now, which they were listed as a three-point favorite on the road in Chicago because I think Vegas understood the same thing. And then they play the Steelers in the Super Bowl. They were listed as a short favorite and they end up winning. Now, a team like the 2010 Packers, this is why I don't refer to this style of team anymore with disdain. I think a lot of people still do because it's easy once they lose to just go, well, you, of course you weren't good enough. Let's list all the reasons why, all the warts, all the things that occurred throughout the season that were obvious windows into why you would not win. And I would say, yes, yes, that's true. But every team has warts. The, the favorite on paper has warts. You know, Colorado Avalanche, they've been the favorite on paper 
throughout this entire season. They're still a favorite in, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. They're my favorite team. I watch every game. I could go down the list. I could spend the next 20 minutes saying, well, if you want to talk warts, I can still list warts, even about this team that everybody agrees. Holy shit, they are stacked top to bottom. They have depth. They have star power. They have multiple goaltenders you can play. You can still do it with any team. You could nitpick the Curry Warriors if you want it. Too much, too many turnovers, even with their hand on the squad. They get lackadaisical. They don't turn ratchet up on defense all the time. You can nitpick anything. But these teams that exist outside of the favorites on paper, this is where the respect comes in. Because both of these things can be true. Number one, you are merely good enough. And merely, I don't say with disdain. You are merely good enough to take advantage of breaks going your way. However, through that process, this is the second part. Once you get some breaks, you can channel championship level performance in small spurts because you are a professional team of professional athletes. That's what I think is lost in the shuffle a lot of times in discussing, do I think this team could win? And the immediate answer with most teams is just no, no, no. Look at all these dumb things they've done all year. But when you look at it through that lens, you go, are they good enough to take advantage of breaks? You start to open up more teams. And then you go, okay, let's say, I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know in what capacity breaks go this team's way for a couple NFL playoff games or for a couple basketball series. Then suddenly you're in a conference title game. Are they good enough to then channel championship level spurt for a week for literally one game? That's when you start to expand and expand and expand. You have examples of this through all of time. Think of both New York Giants Super Bowls. I would always start there. Uh, Those teams just, I could list 500 reasons that they were not good. I still believe in present day that their both teams were not that good. However, what they had was resiliency, belief, and defensive lines that were out of this world, that were deep, that could just feast on any offensive line, no matter how good they were, that were just a complete terror against every good quarterback they went against throughout these playoff runs. And then suddenly they're in the Super Bowl and they're playing the Patriots in both years, 2007, 2011. And I'm going, I don't think, I definitely don't think they can win in 2007. And in 2011, I'm still going, I don't think they can win, but I don't know. At this point, I'm not counting them out because this formula, while funky and unsustainable seeming, now they're here. Can they channel it for a game? The answer in both cases, yes and yes. Just sack the quarterback a bunch and have Eli Manning either throw a wounded duck up into the air that David Tyree catches against his head, or in the other game, have Eli Manning throw literally the best pass of his entire life down the left sideline to Mario Manningham for a 50-yard gain that ends up being the play of the game. Toronto Raptors, NBA title, same kind of concept. Really good team. Never thought they were a championship contender for quite some time in that season. Second round, they're playing Philly. It's back and forth. I go, I can't really tell the difference between these teams. I'm not sure who's going to win. As it turns out, it's Kawhi Leonard bouncing a ball around the rim 500 times at the buzzer of game seven to win. Then they're playing the Bucs. They're down 2-0. I'm going, I think the Bucs are better, but... I don't, neither of these teams make sense. And it doesn't even matter because the Warriors with Durant and Curry and Draymond and Clay are looming. So who even cares? They come storming back. They win four straight. Now they're in the finals. I'm going, yeah, it's not gonna, wait a second. Now we're getting Kevin Durant tearing his Achilles. Wait a second. Clay Thompson's tearing his ACL in game six. Wait a second. The Raptors are hoisting a championship trophy after that game. It's not a knock on that team because now with all of the evidence, I'm like, that was a really good basketball team. They took advantage of breaks. They were resilient. They fought back when they needed to. Maybe they weren't better on paper than any of those teams I just listed. Philly, Milwaukee, definitely not Golden State at full strength. But that's the name of the game. Good enough for the breaks to matter. LA Kings winning the Stanley Cup as an eight seed. Great example from hockey. 
That whole season, I'm just like, ah, who cares? Next thing you know, they're in the playoffs and they're roasting teams. It wasn't just that the Kings won the Stanley Cup as an eight seed. It's that they hammer dunked every single team, every single round. They played like a juggernaut on paper. And the next thing you know, they're hoisting the cup. And I'm just like, how was that team an eight seed? What on earth happened there? (laughs) This kind of stuff, it's just, you can go year by year. And it makes sense once they've won. The Raptors, the Giants, the Kings. The teams that get left by the wayside are the teams that really merit the discussion, in my opinion. Because you can have great arguments for and against. You can get these great contrasts in thought between people who follow sports closely. Part of why I really like this, you know. I can listen to somebody who's really smart and thought out and they're talking about why they thought this team was a contender or not. And I'm going, huh, I have a completely different viewpoint. Let's talk about why. You can get that tale of contrast within this process of, okay, is that team good enough to take advantage of breaks? Hmm. All right. What does that mean in the context of this season? You look at my hometown team, Utah Jazz, and that question was up in the air. And then you saw them get the break that Kawhi Leonard two years ago is not playing in game five and game six of the second round with a 2-2 series. Jazz lose both games. You watch this year, they get the break that Luka Doncic is now not playing the first three games of this year's round one. They lose both those series. You understand coming out of first the Clippers, but now really after the Mavericks, you go, this is just quite obviously not a team that is good enough to take advantage of the breaks. They didn't check that box that some people thumb their nose at that I go, no, you're a damn good team if you are good enough to take advantage of the breaks. You're a team like the Miami Heat this year that I don't know how they were doing it at points, especially within the Eastern Conference Finals. Half the time, it seemed like it was a fluke. Half the time, it seemed like they were just willing themselves to the finish line through injuries, through atrocious half-court offense, through this incredible defense that they would just throw out there and swarm everybody. And yet there they were in game seven, and they'd been getting bombed out that whole game. They were down by double digits with three minutes to go. I'm ready to turn it off because I'm just like, "Eh, who cares? This game's over. And the next thing you know, Jimmy Butler's rising up for a three that would put them ahead with 20 seconds to go on a fast break. It's a great swinging doors moment in the history of the NBA because if that goes through in the heat win, <laughs> there's so many ripple effects for that particular point in time. We don't know what's happening in the NBA finals yet. I mean, it's 1-1 with Boston Golden State. We don't know who's going to win, but there's a chance that the team that ends up winning, Boston, just gone and then dissembled because how did we lose this team in the Eastern Conference Finals on top of these other Eastern Conference Finals losses in years past, but especially this one. This Miami Heat team, they didn't have anybody healthy. Even Jimmy Butler in that series was battling through injury. He's awesome in game one and game six and game seven. He's atrocious in three other games. Being good enough to take advantage of the breaks. It is it is a very high level you ascend to if you can consider yourself to be that. The team that I'm thinking the very most about this team that I have, I personally have thumbed my nose at throughout these playoffs. And now we're here and I'm like, you know what? It's time to actually talk about this and give them their due. It's the current charge of the New York Rangers. Team that's very fun to watch play hockey. I I greatly enjoyed watching them throughout the regular season because they just would get in these games where I'm like, you probably shouldn't have won this, but holy cow, Panarin did something sweet or Zibanejad didn't. Shesterkin made 42 saves, and now here you won. This is it's pretty cool. But entering the playoffs this year in a stacked East, I mean a stacked East. I can't remember a playoff field this deep, one through eight in the East. Entering the playoffs, the New York Rangers, their underlying numbers were completely atrocious. In the entire league, they were 28th in Corsi percentage. That's just shot share percentage. 
really good indicator of who is a team that over the course of time is going to be better than another team. You have 40 shots a game and the other side always has 30. It's safe to assume that more times than not, you are going to be winning. Their expected goal percentage, which takes that a step further and just says where shots are coming from on the ice. What is the expectation for this to go in? So now it's just not merely shots and goal. Now it's what did we expect you to score on? They were 29th in the league in expected goal percentage. We're talking right at the bottom of hockey in two very, very, very predictive metrics about who is good and who is bad and what is sustainable and what is not. And yet the Rangers had a great regular season. And they enter the playoffs with a formula for winning that in hockey is the most unsustainable combination. A great power play. It's the driving force behind your offense and the best goaltender in hockey, Igor Shesterkin. Those are two really volatile things in the world of hockey. Five on five play. The majority of the game is played at five on five. If you're dominating expected goals and Corsi at five on five, really good chance that over the course of a regular season, a playoff series, that advantage is going to win out. Now, it's not to say that the Rangers don't have individual talent. I mentioned Panarin, mentioned Zibanejad, two of the best forwards in hockey. Chris Kreider, 50-plus goal score, power play extraordinary. I think he scores 26 goals in the power play this regular season. Crazy stuff. Adam Fox won the Norris Trophy last year as the best defenseman in hockey, even though Kevin McCarr should have won it. I will leave that there, but great defenseman in his own right. However, as a whole... When you go top to bottom, when you go through the four lines, when you go through the three defensive pairings, when you introduce Gorgiev as the backup goaltender, you go, this hockey team, they don't make sense as a contender because of what awaits in the East. You know, outside of Washington, who is the eight seed, who won a Stanley Cup within the last five years. <laughs> I point at the Rangers and I go, this is the least likely team to make the Stanley Cup finals out of this conference. They just are because we have so much evidence of it. Yeah, we have some things that they do good. It's not to take away from them, but the most predictive measures in hockey, they're really, really hard to overcome, and I don't see the Rangers being able to do that. What I discounted, the Rangers are good enough for the breaks to matter, so now they're entering the playoffs, and they're playing against the Penguins in round one, and what do you know? Tristan Jari, their starting goaltender, gets injured right at the end of the regular season. He's not ready. Second string goaltender injured in game one in overtime. Next thing you know, we have Louis Domingue, their third stringer on Pittsburgh. He's stepping in in the middle of overtime in game one, a game that Pittsburgh ultimately ends up winning. And now they're playing Louis Domingue up through game six of that series, a series that the Penguins go up 3-1 in, even with their third string goaltender, a series that the Penguins are up by multiple goals in game five, up 3-1. Jacob Truba injures Sidney Crosby, their best forward, one of the best players in the history of hockey. Immediate ripple effect from that. Rangers storm back, win the game. Crosby doesn't play game six. Rangers fall down by multiple goals in that game. Storm back and win. Game seven, Tristan Jari off a long break. He's back in net in game seven. Rust, you're not expecting a lot, but you're going at least he's not our third string goaltender, Louis Domingue, who gave up one of the worst game winning goals you'll ever see at the end of game six. Rangers fall down by multiple goals again in game seven. Five, six, and seven. They fall down by multiple goals. They storm back. They get a power play call in overtime. Panarin risks at home with 10 seconds to go on that power play. You're advancing. A lot of breaks went into that. And Rangers fans, I think, bristled a lot because people were like, this, what in the hell just happened in that round? Pittsburgh dominated, and I mean dominated. Corsi and expected goals. Every single game, it was just, 
it was an incredible discrepancy in what the expectations were based upon chances generated versus what was happening at the end of the series. <laughs> I've actually never seen anything quite like it. But then you remember Louis Domingue's in net and you go, oh, well, yeah. Having a third string goaltender against Igor Shosturkin, that's going to balance some things out. So they go to the next round. They're playing the Carolina Hurricanes. Just a Corsi monster all season. They go down 2-0 right out of the gate, look completely impotent the first two games in Carolina. Then they win the next two. And they look completely impotent on the road in game five against Carolina. They're down 3-2. They need to win the next two. They force a game seven, but it just seemed exactly like how the Boston Carolina series played out. Home team wins every game. Move on. Carolina's playing that entire series with their backup goaltender because their starter, Frederick Anderson, gets injured right at the end of the regular season. So now Antti Ranta has to play the whole series. Pretty fortuitous luck as it pertains to goaltending, which is a thing in hockey. I can attest to that many, many times over the last five years with the Colorado Avalanche. They go in, they dump truck Carolina in game seven. Shesterkin's awesome. Rangers find the groove, score on the power play, score six goals. Here you go. You're moving on. But even still after that, I'm going, look, I, I feel like I'm taking away from this team's success by saying this, but I don't think that's necessarily true. But nothing about this seems sustainable. But, you know, what I am discounting as I'm watching that is this team is good enough to take advantage of the breaks. And they've gotten some great breaks through two rounds. They've made some great plays in their own right. Shesterkin's really rounded in form after a rocky start against Pittsburgh. Now you're here and you're in the Eastern Conference Finals and the back-to-back Stanley Cup champion Tampa Lightning are waiting. Okay, this is going to be a tough hill to climb, but you only need to channel good or fortunate hockey for two series. So now they've played three games and I'm sitting here and I'm going, I mean, this is kind of incredible to watch. Because against the Lightning so far, a team that's missing one of, if if not their most important forwards in Braden Point, It's been the story of the regular season through three games. The Rangers' power play is white hot. Igor Shosturkin is white hot. So now they are currently up 2-1 going into game four on Tuesday night. In Tampa Bay, Tampa's favored, but the Rangers are up 2-1 against a bruised and battered lightning squad with games five and seven, if necessary, at Madison Square Garden. This is the point of the season where you start to go, it doesn't matter how you got here. Can you channel something right now in this moment? The Rangers have done a really good job of A, being good enough to put themselves in position for the breaks to matter, and then B, once they're in that particular Game 7 against Pittsburgh or Game 7 against Carolina or now against Tampa right out of the gate when everybody's going, they're going to lose Game 1, they're going to lose Game 2, they're underdogs in their own house in Game 1 and Game 2 against Tampa, short dogs at home. Everybody's counting them out and then a win and a win And even in game three, a game that you just thought that Tampa has to just come out and bonk them. They just have to. This team has shown they're always rising to the moment. They're big favorites at home. It's the most must win that a game can get outside of a literal must win. But you can't go down 3-0. And even in that game, the Rangers are holding a lead going into the third. And Tampa scores a game-winning goal with 40 seconds to go in the third period. Andre Plot on just a nasty pass from Nikita Kucherov in the slot. Even with all that, the Rangers are up 2-1. They're going, okay, we're in position for all of this to matter. We need to channel it for a small amount of time. As an Avalanche fan, on the other side, uh, I've been watching this series and just, I always think about, when the Avalanche are good, I always think about every team matching up against them. And just the nature of how I am as a fan, no matter how good my team is or bad, I'm just, I'm terrified of every single team 
<laughs> because that's how the playoffs work. That's how the chase for the Stanley Cup goes. So the Avalanche, they go into round one against Nashville, and I'm just listing all the ways. I go, Nashville's scary, dude. Nashville can do things. Oh, my goodness. And then St. Louis, same thing. And now with Edmonton, same thing. Whoever arises out of this Eastern Conference matchup, it'll be the same thing because I understand all of the reasons why that team is there. A lot of people will look at it and say, well, Colorado, they've been great all year. They're the Stanley Cup favorites. These are the reasons why they win and nothing else matters. I go, I hope that's true, but now you're to the time of the year, especially if you're in conference finals or if this ends up being the matchup in the Stanley Cup finals, Avalanche Rangers. Some people would look at it as a break for Colorado. They'd go, oh yes, well, this is a worse team than the Lightning. Nothing about this seems sustainable, fluky, blah, 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 all the things I've said. <laughs> but me, as I'm expanding the way that I think and talk about sports and just like kind of influenced by the lens of A, my own experience and B, just what I've watched with my own teams over the course of the last 25 years, I go, yeah, I don't know because I, the man who is very aware of the chaotic nature of hockey, I'll still be on pins and needles trying to decide. That's the matchup. Rangers out. If this particular New York team that is good enough to take advantage of the breaks of the game, that is a very hard level to ascend to. If this New York Rangers team can ride their power play and their goaltender for one more series. And honestly, once you get to this time of the year, that is not that far-fetched. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Remember, sign up for my newsletter. Go to chrisrawl.com, subscribe. Every Wednesday, you'll get it. It's free. Number two, if you have anybody you think would be an interesting guest on the show to talk about sports in any capacity at a higher level than just globbing out who won and who lost, you should shoot me their information. Or if it's you, you should email me, chrisco.com. I'm all ears. I want to expand this uh, as, as it pertains to talking to guests. And that's one of the ways that I think we can do that. So thank you for listening. I'll be back on Friday to talk presumably about hockey, presumably about basketball, presumably about football, maybe about golf. You know the drill. All right. Peace. Peace.